Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the pastors here and also one of your missionaries uh, working mostly in Africa. But it's a joy today and next week to get uh, a double shot at sharing the Word of God with you. Um, in our series, In Good Company, uh, we've been exploring ancient stories of how the presence of God, the power of God, the grace of God has been at work in different people's lives. And in these ancient stories, we're learning, though, as our kind of the uh, schematic represents that uh, the stories of ancient places and ancient people encountering an eternal God translate to today. They're very relevant to our need for his grace, our need for his encounter in our lives today. And one of the most challenging times in every life in which we need to understand God is whenever we hurt, whenever we experience pain, whenever we experience suffering, because suffering can not only wreck our lives, it can, it can rattle our faith. It can cause us to wonder, is God really who I think he is or thought he is? And God, where are you in the midst of my pain? Are you even aware of what's going on? This has been an important topic that we've taught on over the years here at Seacoast. In fact, if at the end of the day you want to go back and go into the sermon archives, a few years ago we did an eight-week study of God's purposes for pain, and, and the title we chose was Everybody Hurts. Watch this. We'll try that one more time. I think it was there. There we go. It's great, but with no audio. So we'll save it for next week. Cut that off. Okay, we'll show you to that. Here's what you would have seen if you had seen that, that uh, what was on the screen. And that is this. Everybody really hurts. And those hurts have a big range to them. They take many forms. If you watch the news, you can't escape. Even just this last week, as I catch a little bit of the news, you've got stories in the last seven days of tornadoes wrecking and tearing apart not just homes but lives throughout the Midwest. You've got stories of uh, hurricanes approaching the U.S. and coming ashore just uh, a little bit west of uh, New Orleans and, and coming up into Louisiana. And you say, well, but it's only a Cat 1. Sure, it's a Cat 1 that's going to dump 20 inches of rain on people. And you're going to see incredible stories of flooding this week already happening and lives ruined and things lost. Stories of loss and grief are all over the place. We see stories of it in the news, stories of people hurting people, nature hurting people, stories of conflict, stories all around the world. In fact, pain happens continually. And, you know, and the question we encounter is, so where is God in the midst of that pain? Where is God in the midst of of, 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 of the pain from the, from the scale of our small-time irritants that hit us every day all the way to more severe pain. I mean, for example, small-time irritants, I got upset yesterday because I suffered yesterday because we were having a family gathering by the pool, listening to Spotify through our system, driven by the Wi-Fi, our Wi-Fi went down. I know, can you imagine? It's like, where is God? right? Now, I kind of joke about that, but yeah, I got irritated because, you know, I pay for this Wi-Fi, and I've got an upgraded Wi-Fi. What is the gadget that throws it everywhere? Anyway, I got not just one antenna. I got the four antenna model. I paid for that, 
and I had to go all the way in the house. I had to unplug my Wi-Fi. I had to reboot that sucker, and then it worked again. I'm not paying for that. Isn't it amazing, though, how sometimes we do let even what I call first world problems? Because you realize if your worst problem is how fast is your internet or how effective is your Wi-Fi, you're among the 5% of the most wealthiest people on planet Earth. Yeah. The people we visit with and work with in uh, Africa often don't have that problem. They have other problems. But then in all of our lives, too, we have episodes of more serious problems where you get the phone call like we did a few years back from our son who said that our soon-to-be-born grandson, Andy Burke, had died in the womb two weeks before his planned entry into life. And Andy lived, but he lived two weeks short of nine months, and his only experience was in the warmth of the womb of his mother, but that probably is the greatest grief that we've ever encountered. So whether it's natural disasters, whether it's personal disasters, whether it's loss of a big magnitude or the smaller losses of dreams and things in our lives, pain happens routinely. And I believe it's one of the things that Satan often uses to try to not just wreck lives, but rattle our faith in God and in Christ. So in this series, I thought, where do we go to find some good company of some people that went through pain and came out the other side walking with God? I want to go to the most extreme story of pain and suffering in the Bible. I want to go to the book of Job. So open to the book of Job, and today more than ever, you will be helped by an outline that we provided. So if you want to take out this outline, it will, I guarantee you, you're going to keep up with me better. Because I'm not going to teach one chapter. I'm going to teach 42 chapters from the book of Job. But don't worry, we got pizza coming at about 2 p.m., and it's on me. Okay, Ryan's out of town, so I thought I'll wreck the church budget. Pizza for everyone at 2 a.m., amen? Yeah, and you're thinking, I'm not going to be here at 2 a.m. Yeah, and neither am I. We're going to fin finish on time, but here's where I want to go. I want to cover the big story of Job. So to do that, the outline is more detailed than usual. It'll help you. Also, on the screens, more than usual, I'm going to be popping verses of Scripture and major points. So if you follow with me with the outline and the screens, we're going to all go through and walk through this story. It's kind of like a drama of the story of Job and his suffering and his God. Here we go, 42 chapters. I like to call the story the story of when suffering makes no sense. Because a lot of times there are episodes in my life where I suffer and I look at it and I say, oh, I think I know why I'm suffering this time because I set myself up for this or I did something stupid or I sinned or I, you know, I realize I'm kind of suffering the consequences of my own choices. But in the case of Job, Job is the example of both extreme suffering when there appears to be no reason for it. You're going to see what I mean in a minute. The story breaks down into three sections. There's the prologue, kind of it sets up the conflict and the battle that's going on, what's happening behind the scenes. And then there's the dialogue, from prologue to dialogue, and most of the book is a dialogue. And it's not even a dialogue, most of it not with God, it's between Job and his wife and Job and his friends, and Job's trying to figure out why everything's happening to him the way it is. And then there's the epilogue. 
And the epilogue is very short, about just a couple chapters, but it's going to give us the main takeaway lessons that I believe apply to every single life and every single form of suffering. Okay, you ready? Ready? Yeah, here we go. Job chapter 1. First, meet Job the man. In essence, God says, this is my best man on planet earth. Job chapter 1, verse 1 says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. His possessions were huge. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Now understand, God's not against males, but female donkeys trump male donkeys any day. Amen? Okay, come on, gals. You got to get into this a little bit, right? Now, why is that? Well, because the female donkeys are the ones that are going to have the future donkeys, right? And we only know that, you know, you know, one good male donkey takes care of a lot of females. Anyway, we won't go there. But the bottom line is this. That's, that's a sign of wealth. It's a sign of wealth that he points that out. In other words, and very many servants, people working for him. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job was the modern-day wealthiest man in his region. That's what he's saying. And not only that, but he was a man who was blessed by God. He was healthy, wealthy, and still humble and loved God. And behind the scenes, there's a heavenly challenge that sets up this story. So Job's living his life under the blessing of God, extremely blessed, but yet still staying extremely humble and godly. And in chapter 1, verse 13, things take a turn. Because what we see in chapter 1, uh, actually even earlier, chapter 1, verse 6 and following, that's a typo in your outline, beginning in verse 6 and following, it says, Now there was a day in which these people came into the presence of God, and it says in verse 7 that Satan was among them, and that God allowed Satan to actually come into his presence in the heavenlies. This happens, by the way, sometimes uh, in the scriptures, so don't be shocked by it, but this is God's choice. And in this case, God allows Satan to come. And then the story and the drama begins. What happens is God says to Satan, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? And this is how he describes him. The Lord said to Satan on the screen, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So what he's saying is, Job is my best follower on planet earth, bar none. And Satan responds, verse 9, Satan answered and says, does Job fear you for nothing? In other words, hey God, I mean, of course he fears you, of course he follows you. Look how you've blessed the guy. He's the mo one of the most blessed men in the region, if not the wealthiest. He's got a great family, great kids, great wife, great fortune. He's got the good life. Of course he's going to worship God. To which God responds, okay, test him. Test him, but don't harm him. Verse 12, then God said to Satan, behold, all that is his is within your power only do not put your hand on Job. So you can do anything you want to him, but you can't touch him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And this challenge test in the heavenlies, unbeknownst to Job, begins. It takes on two rounds. Round one, 
Challenge test number one in Job 1.13 now. His fortune and his family are destroyed. There's a series of attacks on his herds. All of his herdsmen are slaughtered by his enemies. All of his cattle, all of his donkeys, all of his, um, all of his camels, they're all stolen from him and taken. He all of a sudden loses everything. It's as if he's invested in the stock market and the thing crashes completely. Job goes from wealthy to penniless in essence. But you say, well, but he's got his family. Well, no, because then it says that a mighty wind comes up. His kids were having a party. His sons and daughters were together at one of their homes. Job gets the report that a mighty wind came up, blows down the house, kills his entire family. You imagine, he didn't, do, he didn't lose one kid. He lost 10 kids and all of his possessions in one day. This is a bad day. Job chapter 1, verse 20, Job responds. It says, then Job tore his robe and shaved his head, which are signs of repentance and grief. And he fell to the ground and he worshiped God in the midst of his pain. And he said this, it's a famous statement, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he blessed God in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his loss. It's an incredible faith. Satan comes back into the presence of God again. This is what I call the challenge test round two in chapter two of Job. This time, God says, hey, have you watched Job lately? He still loves me, still follows me, still believing in me, still worshiping me. And Satan says, well, of course he does. Because all of us love possessions, but most of all, we love our own bodies. We love our own life, and you wouldn't let me touch him. God says, okay, I'm going to loosen the rules. And he says to him, so the Lord said to Satan, verse two, chapter 2, verse 6, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. You can't take his life, but you can do what you want. So in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then Satan went out to the, from the presence of the Lord. He smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. His whole body now is covered with painful boils. Now, at this point, Job gets another problem, his wife. Now, Job has a good wife, and you got to hurt for her. She's been through all this pain with him, right? She just lost her kids. She just lost her fortune as well. And she comes in verse 9 and actually says, Job, why are you still hanging in there with God? Why don't you curse God and die? Another famous statement from this book. That's where it comes from. Job responds to her. And he says to her, he says, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10 on the screens. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. That's not an, that's not an admonition against all women, by the way. He's saying, in this case, you're not giving me wisdom. Then he says this, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, God did not sin with his lips. Now, some of your translations, if you're looking at this in your Bibles, uh, may say, should we accept good from God and not accept evil? I think the translation from the Hebrew here of the word evil 
is probably a poor translation. Uh, it's more often translated like adversity, uh, troubles. Uh, in the paraphrase of the message, I kind of like its general reading where it says, hey, shouldn't we bless God in, on good days and on bad days? You know, whether it's a good day or a bad day, God says, trust me. God says, worship me. So it's not saying God's participating in evil, but he is allowing calamity uh, to come into Job's life. There's no doubt about that. He's turned Satan loose to do that. And then he has three friends who show up toward the end of chapter 2. His three friends come, and I'll just read it to you. 2.13, it says, And his three friends came, and they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to Job, for they saw that his pain was very great. Let me tell you something. These are good friends. These are good friends who are going to give some bad advice in a minute, but don't underestimate, uh, don't overlook at least what they did. These are good enough friends that when Job was really in pain and grief, they came and they had no answers, but they sat with him just as a friend. They didn't say a word, but they just sat with him, took care of him for seven days, seven nights. That's a long time to just sit and think about the pain this guy is going through. They watch, they listen, they sit for seven days. Now, finally, the dialogue begins, all right? So we set the story, right? You understand the, the, the challenge going on in the heavenlies between God and Satan. And Job is the character being afflicted by all of this. And he's sitting with his friends for at least seven days. Eventually, the dialogue starts to spell out. Eventually, you begin to, to say what is in your mind. And it begins with Job in chapter 3. Job says basically this, I wish I'd never been born. In fact, I'll give you one quick verse. If you want to just circle these key verses as we track through the book, it'll help you later. Job 3.11 captures it. Why did I not die at birth? Just come forth from the womb and expire. Ah, I wish I would have done that. My life is so painful. I just wish I would have died as a baby at birth. That would have been better for me. Job's friends now speak. And it breaks into three conversations. I want to summarize them very quickly because you'll see the flow. I just want you to get the big idea. His friends have had enough. They've watched him suffer. They've watched him. They've sat with him quietly for seven days, seven nights at least, right? And finally, when Job begins to say, I wish I'd never been born, they feel the freedom to speak. They're going to try to give Job some advice. Advice number one, it breaks into three rounds. Round number one, and here are some names for those of you that are hopefully someday blessed to have a baby. How about these? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, okay? Now, these are three good friends, so I, I recommend them if you want to pick a name. All right, but here we go. If you have triplets, you can just knock out all three names. Here we go. So Eliphaz starts first, Job 4.8. He says this, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. See, what's he saying? What he's saying is, look, God punishes the wicked because they sow the seeds of wickedness. And Job, 
we don't know when and where you've been doing it, but you've been sowing wickedness and you're just getting what you deserve. That's my observation. You know, if, you, if you're suffering, you, it's because you deserve it. Now, Job responds. And in a couple chapters, here's what he says. Number one, just to remember these words, I'm innocent. Yeah, I've been sitting for days looking at my own life and examining my life, and I can't find, I mean, he says, he never claims to be sinless, that's for sure, but he says, as far as I know, I have been faithfully following my God, honoring his word, trusting him, and I don't know anything that I could do differently. I'm innocent. Number two is, I'm frustrated too. I don't understand what God is doing. But then number three, he makes this statement of faith. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. God may take my very life, but if he takes my life, I'm going to die trusting him. Round two, Zophar. Zophar comes to the scene. Zophar begins to speak into Job, and he says, look, from what I've seen, the wicked suffer because they have turned against God. That's probably your problem. And Job responds, and again, he says, hey, I'm innocent. He says in chapter 16, uh, there's no violence in my hands. My prayers are pure. He says, but I'm frustrated. I don't understand where I've erred. I don't understand what God is doing. But then he makes this declaration again of faith. That's what I want you to see. Job 19, 25. Here it goes. But as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at, the, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my sin, even after my skin is flayed. It's basically a Hebrew word for if I'm skinned alive, if my skin falls off. Yet without my flesh, I'll still see God, whom I myself shall behold whom my eyes shall see and not another, my heart faints within me. But I love his statement when he says, look, even if I lose my skin, lose my life, I know my Redeemer lives. That's a fascinating statement that even at this point, because Job is very, very old in ancient history, and even at this point, he had, he had enough knowledge of God that he knew that God was his redeemer. God was the one that would supply his forgiveness, that would give him eternal life. He knew that. And he knew that someday that redeemer would come to the earth and fix the problems on planet earth. How he knew that, we don't really know for sure. Uh, you know, we know now because we know the rest of the story. But his faith is in, my God is my redeemer. He's the one that I trust. And when my life is over, I know I will see him. Period. So in the midst of his pain, he still trusts his God. Round three, round three, Eliphaz speaks a second time and basically says, well, then maybe it's because this suffering has the purpose of wanting to teach you where you're wrong. In other words, Eliphaz says in 22.4, he says, is not your wickedness great, Job, and your iniquity without end? In other words, Job, you've got to You've got to wake up and recognize this has to be your fault. And Job again says, you know, I'm innocent, I'm frustrated. And he ends the section in chapter 27, verse 3, by saying this. For as long as life is in me, he says, I will hold fast till I die. That's, 
That's his big idea. I'm going to hold fast until I die. He says, far be it for me that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness. I will not let it go, period. And he again affirms round three, his faith in his God. Now, up until now, this has been Job in pain and his friends trying to figure it out. Job in pain and his friends trying to figure it out. And his friends are, are maybe being logical, but they're not speaking truth. We'll come back to that in a minute. Because remember, God has a purpose that they don't understand, that they can never understand or see that's going on beyond them. So finally, God speaks. And God speaks mainly by asking Job a series of questions. And here's my summary. This is in Chapters 38 to 41. So I'm going to give you the whole summary in three statements. Number one, Job 38, 4. He asked Job, God speaks, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, if you understand how I did that. Job has nothing to say. A little later, chapter 38, verse 12. Job. Uh, why have you, have you ever in life um, commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? In other words, Job, when was the last time you made sure the sun came up and went down? It's not a big deal, but I kind of do that daily. And he's kind of sarcastically helping Job see that he's not God. Chapter 40, verse 1. I like this one. Then the Lord said to Job, here's another question. Job, will you, as the one finding fault with me, the fault finder, are you going to contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer. If you think I'm not doing what I should do as God, come on, I'm I'm listening. Job gets it. Chapter 42 uh, is what I call the epilogue. It's like, okay, this dialogue is going on. God still hasn't explained to Job why he did what he did. Notice that, right? But he's pointing Job. He's pointing Job back to, you know, Job, do you remember? I am God. You're not. Will you trust me? You've been trusting me. But Job, I'm not going to answer your questions. And suddenly, Job speaks. In chapter 42, Job gets what's going on. Here it is. Chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. It's the last chapter right before the book of Psalms. And here is how Job responds. I'll read these six verses. Verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. In other words, I've been saying stuff I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, God, you to instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now I see you. Therefore, I retract. I withdraw my complaints. And I repent in dust and ashes. Now, let me break that down for you. What did Job say? If you study that, he says this, God, you are all powerful, I'm not. You are sovereign. You are in control and I'm not. You have purpose, but it's beyond me. You are all wise, so I should shut up and ask you to instruct me and not me instruct you. It's your job to instruct me, not for me to instruct you. And finally, and God, you are holy and perfect, therefore I will repent. I'm going to go back to sitting in dust and ashes, in grief, in my pain, and let you teach me. Job gets this big idea. You are God, I am not. You are God, I am not. It's probably helpful at this point for each of us to look at someone next to you and just remind them. You can say it right now, you know. Wow. You're not God. You can say it. There we go. And, and neither am I. That's important. The second part is very important. Yeah, you're not God and neither am I. You're not God and neither am I. Job's friends had misunderstood God. In fact, when God chastens the three friends in chapter 42, verse 7, he says, you're in trouble with me. Because you, here it is, have not spoken to me what is right. You've been speaking wrongly about me and my behavior. You've been speaking wrongly to your friend Job. You've been giving him bad advice. You've been telling him that he's the problem or he wouldn't be suffering. And you have misspoken about how I do things. In fact, there's kind of a humorous end to this. He says to them, you know, I ought to just... And kind of the general idea is, I ought to just get rid of the three of you. But here's a better idea. You go to Job, ask his forgiveness, and take him a gift. And, uh, and you ask Job to pray for you. And if Job prays for you, I'm letting you off the hook. If not, you're history. Now, that's my Hebrew paraphrase. But read it. That's really what goes on. So yeah, these guys come to Job and they go, Job, we just realized God told us we were giving you bum advice. Please forgive us. And they gave him a gift and they, they humbled themselves and, and, and God said to ask you to pray for us. Now at that point, if you're Job, what do you do? So you go say your own prayers. No, no, no. Job in his righteousness says, I'll pray for you. I forgive you. Job forgives them, prays for them, and God blesses them. And then finally, at the end of the story, God blesses Job and restores his losses. God gives him 10 more kids, seven more boys, three more girls. God takes his 
livestock wealth, and he doubles it. Now there's not just 500 female donkeys, there's 1,000, etc., camels, etc., okay? So God doubles his wealth, restores his family, gives him 140 more years of life in which he says he grew old to see his sons and his grandsons to four additional generations flourish. And he dies an old man satisfied. End of story. So what do we learn from this? Um, I want to give you a couple short statements that jump out to me from Job. But I want to say to you right now, this is such an important topic of us understanding why God allows pain that um, because Ryan gave me two weeks to teach back to back, um, next week we're going to look at a new, New Testament character who went through pain, but who tells us Why does God allow it? What is God's purposes behind pain? So next week, we're going to go there. Because God never tells Job why. But here's what we observe in Job. Number one, pain happens. Don't let it surprise you. Expect it. I think as Christians, we need to get over this idea that God has put us in a protective bubble in Jesus Christ. God is there to comfort us, strengthen us, and provide the grace or the strength to go through pain and not be destroyed by it. But God never promises that we will not suffer the same pains that other people suffer on planet Earth. In fact, next week, I'm going to tell you why he hasn't done that. Number two, God has purpose behind his pain. But his eternal purposes are often beyond our finite minds. So sometimes we can say, oh, now I look back and I understand why God did that. But many times we don't. Job is a case where Job never was told the why. God never revealed to Job what was going on in the heavenlies. But God had purpose. In fact, just to give you an illustration of that, down through time, since the writing of this book, you have just joined this morning the millions of followers of Christ who have learned from Job's pain in order to help you be able to respond to your own pain and not be destroyed by it. Get that? Can you imagine how much, how many lives have been helped in their walk with God because of Job's pain being real, being recorded, and now being taught and given in Scripture for all time until Christ returns. Literally, billions of painful episodes, our our response can be changed because of Job having gone through this, if we learn the lessons. So God had a purpose. Job just didn't know it. Number three, The most dangerous temptation in life when we hurt is to give up on God. That was the main objective. Satan was wanting Job to curse God and die. He was wanting Job to give up on his trust in his God, and he he never succeeded, but he came close. So be aware that giving up on God because we hurt and cry out and God seems to not respond 
is the most dangerous thing you'll ever be tempted to do. Watch out for it. And what's the best preventative? Number four, our most important preventative knowledge is the knowledge of God. It's the true knowledge of the true God who created us, created the universe, sent Christ to die for us out of his love and, give, and gives us life. Knowing the truth about God is essential. In fact, let me give you this as a major takeaway. It is more important to know the who than the why when we suffer. We often say, God, why? God says, I'm not going to tell you why, but I will remind you who. I am your God. I loved you so much, I sent Christ to die for you. I've promised you eternal life. I've promised to provide the body of Christ to comfort you and be with you. I've promised that I will go through it with you. And I may never tell you why, but you can know who it is that you trust. So really understanding the character of God was the secret. That's what Job came back to in chapter 42. God, I know you are, you are, you are, you are. Therefore, I'm quit, I quit asking why. And finally, if you want to know the true knowledge of God, the final point is when you're questioning or confused, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Because we have an advantage that Job didn't have. Job knew from Revelation the truth about his God, but he didn't know the end of the story. We have the end of the story. Um, we can look not only to learn from Job, but we can go beyond Job to Jesus. Because God not only was there, and he had assured Job, hey, I know my Redeemer lives. Remember that? Well, guess what? We know the Redeemer. Job knew his Redeemer would someday be real and redeem him and come again and give life and fix planet Earth and all of its problems. But we now know that that Redeemer was Jesus Christ that he came, he died for you and for all of your sin and all of your suffering. And Christ is our ultimate example of extreme suffering. He suffered way beyond the suffering of Job because he bore our sins, died on the cross to give us life. But he rose again. He's alive. He's here to help you go through suffering, not around it, but to go right through the mess. And when you have doubts and questions, it's okay to cry out to God and express your frustration like Job did. But at the end of the day, come back to Job's faith and say, though he fillet my flesh, I will behold him. I will see him. I will be with him. My eternity is secure by the grace of God and the work of Christ. Which is why we're going to end this service in a brief time of communion. You say, communion on a week when we talk about Job? Yes. Because our source of strength as we go through anything in life is to be reminded that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life.
That's true. It's true for Job. It's true for you and me if you've come to faith in Christ. If not, today's a great day to do that. If you put your trust in Christ as your Savior, as the one who took care of your sins on his cross, then we would invite you to join us in communion today. Communion here at Seacoast, we allow you to go and serve yourself the bread representing the broken body of Jesus. Drink the cup representing the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. But scripture says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is a remembrance meal. So forget about everything else for the next five minutes. Take some time to pray, and then when you are ready and you've cleansed your heart before the Lord, uh, go to one of the four tables, receive the elements, and eat and drink in remembrance and in allegiance to Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the example of Job and his extreme faith even when tested by severe suffering. Father, we, uh, probably all of us can confess that I don't know if I have faith like Job. I probably don't. But I want to. And I thank you that we, unlike Job, can now reflect on the cross. That God so loves us that he gave his only son for us. And may that strengthen us uh, to trust you uh, whenever times get tough. We worship you now by serving and taking communion together in Christ's name. Amen.